The following audio is from Life Journey Church. More information about Life Journey Church is available at www.lifejourneyva.com. So let's go ahead and go into Mark chapter 12, and we're going to pick up starting around verse 28 here in a second. And so just to make sure we understand this context, uh, Jesus has ticked off some people called the Sanhedrin. They're political, uh, religious leaders. And so uh, Jesus has made them upset. And so they're sending groups of people to Jesus to try to trap him in his words. And so the first group tried to trap him with this uh, a question about uh, taxes. And Jesus, check this out. He leaves them with their, with their jaw on the floor saying, with holding a coin saying, you only know Caesar because you see his image in this coin. You can know God if you look at me because I am the image of the invisible God. Wow. You talk about blasphemy to these religious political leaders. The second trap, the second group of people that they sent to him was a question about marriage and, and resurrection. And, and he exposed to them, Richard talked about this last week, how their, their focus is, is on, is on, they're ignorant about what the word of God actually says. And he exposed to them what the word actually says. And he says, this is why you're dead wrong in even asking this question. And so seeing this, a, another group is sent to ask Jesus some question. And this Question, this third question, this third trap that they're trying to trap Jesus with is this issue of religion or this issue of what we're going to call this morning moralism. Moralism. What is moralism? It sounds like a kind of a weird, cool word. Well, moralism, in case we don't know what it is, moralism is the idea that we basically uh, ought to live our lives by a certain set of moral standards. But moralism is a funny thing. Because uh, it's a funny thing because we could turn on the news, we can read the newspaper, we can listen to the news on the radio, and we will hear within five seconds of listening to the news of some sort of terrible thing that has happened. We just heard about uh, in, in Kenya, right? Um, a, a mall that with, with hostages and, 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 and terrorists, 67 people mutilated and some 70 people that are still unaccounted for. I mean, we, we read these things and we're like, man, this is terrible. This is horrible. What's wrong with people? Or just here locally, it seems like all the time that we're seeing children that are, that are been abducted and, and, and missing. And it's like, what, what could drive somebody to do this? And we look at these situations and we say, you know what the problem is? We say the problem is the moral decay of a society. We say the moral decay of America is the problem with American schools, etc. And I think that's true. I think it's, it's des- it is absolutely true that the problem with our schools, with, our, with, our, you know, with murder rates, with all these different things that are happening, is the moral decay of our society. But here's the problem. If simply moral decay is the problem, then shouldn't moral assent be the solution? If it's just an issue of moral decay that's causing all these problems, isn't the answer, the solution, just to be more moral as people? I mean, my daughter, Gwen, two years old. If you hadn't met her, she's a handful. Um, We are teaching her daily morals, and I think we should. I teach her, I say, you need to uh, say yes, sir, no, sir. You need to say thank you, please, you know, et cetera. We're trying to teach her to be a good little girl. I think that's the responsible thing to do as parents, to teach our kids moral morals. Moralism sounds like a good thing. We practice it with our kids. We practice it with each other. But here's the trap that Ricky set us up with. 
Here's the trap that we've got to wrap our minds around. That, that if we're not careful, we will begin to think, if we don't already think this, that the whole point of life is to live good, moralistic, obedient, proper lives. The trap is thinking that we can actually work our way towards God by living good, moral lives here on earth. The biggest problem with, mor- with moralism is that it's relative. Okay, I was taught by my parents a certain standard of what's right and what's wrong. And so I'm able to judge based on that standard whether or not someone else is doing right or wrong. It's relative. So if somebody, this is what I mean by this, if somebody is sitting in prison on death row with, because they've murdered three people in cold blood, they have the ability to look at someone who has murdered six people and say, what's wrong with that guy? It's relative. I'm not as bad as that person. Okay, I was in youth ministry for years, and I've, been able, I've talked with people, with leaders. I was in youth ministry for 10 years before we moved here, and I've actually talked with, with dads, with husbands, who were actively involved in um, an adult, adulterous relationships, and they would complain to me about people in their work who were acting uh, improper with other people that they weren't married to in their work. And I'm like, wait a second. Look at what's happening here. You... you you're saying that they're doing something wrong and you're, you're not looking at your own heart and life? It's relative. We can always have somebody who's done something worse than us to make us feel better about ourselves. There's a trap in moralism. Uh, there, and what we're witnessing is this idea that we can judge people, judge others, the acceptance of their behavior or not, based on how we have behaved. Or we can feel better about ourselves based on how others behave. Listen, there's always going to be uh, a Hitler to compare ourselves to. But Hitler's not the standard. But when we think of moralism and we live our lives by this religious moralism, trying to behave good and trying to be good, there's always going to be somebody that we're probably behaving better than. But is that the standard. This is a trap. It's serious. It's serious because we don't get honest with ourselves. We stop being objective. And we think, we think as long as we're doing better than someone else, we're going to be okay. We're doing all right. The, as this trap sets in and we think we're doing better than others, here's where it really gets nasty. We think that we don't need Jesus because we're good enough. We're better than so-and-so. Why do I need Jesus? You know that the word Jesus, the name Jesus, actually means Savior? So why would I need a Savior if I feel as though that I'm doing good enough to keep my head above water? I don't need to shout out for the lifeguard to come and save me. I'm doing good enough. Moralism is a trap. And so this is this third issue that we're going to deal with today when we get into Mark 12. This scribe who comes to Jesus who's based his whole existence on moralism, on religion, on doing enough good to make God happy with him. So let's dive into verse 28. We all here? We all on the same page? We all kicking? All right. No squirrels yet? All right. So verse 28. One of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another. So he's still engaging with the Sadducees, which happened, you know, the passage before. And seeing that he, Jesus, answered them, the Sadducees, well, the scribe asks, 
Which commandment is the most important of all? All right, so let's, let's stop here for a second. Which commandment is the most important of all? Scribes were some of the most devout and religious guys ever. It was normal for these guys to memorize literally the first five books of the Old Testament. And like Richard said last week, man, we, we fall asleep trying to read the first five books of the Old Testament. I mean, when it comes to devout religious dedication, these guys are second to none. They have devoted their entire life to studying the Scriptures. One of the common practices that they would do is they would ask different teachers, different rabbis, how those teachers would summarize the law. It's kind of like the, maybe one of the first times you came to Life Journey, or when you were even typing you know, up churches on the internet, one of the first things you wanted to know is, what do we believe about the gospel? Because in a summary, we will summarize the gospel, and in that summary, you'll get an idea of how we view the gospel at large. And that's what they did. They would ask teachers, rabbis, hey, how do you summarize the law and, and give them, to, it would give the scribes an idea of how they view the law on the bigger scale. And so that's what's doing, that's what's happening here. This is a typical question. It was not untypical for Jesus to be asked this type of question. So the scribe, he's seeing that Jesus is holding his own against these antagonistic uh, Pharisees and Herodians and Sadducees. And, and so he gets in, he, he's curious here. He, he's holding his own. He's not getting trapped in his words. And so he says to him, hey, Jesus, how would you summarize the law? What's the most important of all the Old Testament laws? Now, there are 613 of these Old Testament laws. In a minute, we'll talk about the point of them, why the law was even given. But this is how Jesus summarizes them. This is how he prioritizes them right here. Pick up in verse 29. Jesus answers, the most important of all these laws is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. The second is this. So that's a first, but the second, it's a, it's a close second right here. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus says there is no greater commandments than these. So in essence, Jesus is saying that all the laws of Moses will be fulfilled if you just do these things, these simple things. And this is Love God perfectly. And the word with, it literally means from out of, the source being. So from out of, the source being your heart. If you just love God perfectly from out of your heart, if you just love God perfectly from out of your soul, if you just love God perfectly from out of your mind, if you just love God perfectly from out of your strength, out of your body, and on top of all that, if you just love your neighbor, other people, as perfectly as you love yourself, then you fulfilled all the law. That's it. I mean, that's, that's all we have to do. That's all anyone has to do. That's all the Old Testament Jews had to do in order to fulfill all the laws of Moses. They would be perfectly fulfilling all the laws if they would just do this. And so the 613 laws would be perfectly fulfilled if they would just do this. So the Old Testament Jews, if they just love God perfectly, love others perfectly, they're set. There's nothing to worry about. And so this means... If they love God perfectly, then the Jews, they wouldn't lie. They wouldn't steal. They wouldn't covet. They wouldn't commit murder. They wouldn't, do, they wouldn't violate any of the laws if they just love God perfectly. If they loved their neighbors perfectly, they, they wouldn't kill the neighbor. They wouldn't steal from him. They wouldn't bear false witness against them. They wouldn't dishonor them. They wouldn't even move an ancient boundary stone of their neighbors. They wouldn't violate anything against their neighbor if they loved them perfectly as much as they loved themselves. So love really is the answer. If they just love God and loved other perfectly, 
all would be good. The law is satisfied. That's not so hard, right? Well, let's move on to 32. Verse 32 says that the scribe, he agrees with Jesus. All right, so everybody so far has been very antagonistic against Jesus, right? But finally, there's a guy who, he says, he says you're right. It, it, literally, that means, hey, good job, Jesus. You get a star for the day. Like, you did well. You answered well. You have, said true, you have truly said that he is one and there's none besides him. And we are to love him with all our heart, with all our understanding, with all our strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself. And he says this, this is so much more than all the burnt offerings and sacrifices. So the crazy thing here is that the scribe, he's agreeing with Jesus. The scribe even says that if we would do this and do it perfectly, we wouldn't need the whole burnt offering system and the whole sacrificial system, which had become the cornerstone of the whole temple system. What, what the scribe is saying is he agrees if we would just love God perfectly and love others perfectly, then we wouldn't have any sin that needed to be taken care of because there wouldn't be any sin that would be committed because we're loving God perfectly and loving others perfectly. So, What's the whole, this whole law thing, the whole commandments? What are these, what are these, what are these for? We, we didn't grow, I didn't grow up at least as a Hebraic, you know, Jew going through, you know, old covenant Judaism school growing up. So what is the whole purpose of this thing called the Old Testament law? Let's take just two minutes and try to wrap our minds around this. In the book of Genesis, God promises a man, a man named Abraham, that he would one day have a descendant, a promised descendant who would be a blessing to the entire nations. This descendant he's referring to is Jesus, the Messiah. However, 430 years after the Messiah was promised to Abraham, God spoke to another man named Moses, and God gave these 613 laws that Jesus just reduced down into two. Love God perfectly and love others perfectly. These laws were given by God to Moses for the people of Israel to show them how perfect God is and to show them how imperfect they are and that they were in desperate need of someone to save them from their sin. The law revealed just how big of sinners people actually were. In fact, the law actually increased sinning. Did you know that? The law actually increased sinning. If I were to say to you, do not think of the number two. Do not think of the number two, Patrick. Don't think of the number two. Don't think of the number two, Elliot. What's the number that's going to be the hardest to not think of? The number two, right? Well, that's exactly what the law did. The law, Paul says, the law said, you know, do not covet, do not steal, do not do these things. And Paul says in the New Testament that what happened to him was that he couldn't stop thinking about these sins and it actually swelled up in him and in his unredeemed heart a desire to do these very sins that he was told not to do. So this law is given to reveal the perfected nature of God and to reveal our utter inability to achieve that, perfected, that perfect nature. According to the law of Moses, when people broke even one of these 613 laws, they were to offer a burnt offering or sacrifice to appease for their sin, to get God's forgiveness. So because the law actually increased sinning, the cycle went like this. Pay attention. The cycle went like this. Here you go. The law was taught. 
It revealed God's holiness and man's sinfulness. It actually generated a greater desire to sin. And so sinning took place. And so a sacrifice had to be offered. Then the law was taught. And the holiness of God was revealed. And the sinfulness of man was revealed. And actually generated a desire to sin on man's behalf. And so they sinned. And then a sacrifice had to be offered. And then the law was taught. The holiness, you see the cycle here. The holiness of God, sinfulness of man, the desire to sin happened, sin happened, and there wasn't sacrifice that had to be offered. It was this cycle over and over and over. And the scribe is saying, hey, if we just love God perfectly and love others perfectly, we won't sin. And we won't have to do these burnt offerings and these uh, sacrifices anymore. Now, if, if we question that cycle we don't have to look any further than our kids. I told you I'm a parent, proud parent of a two-year-old. And so as soon as I say to her, Gwen, don't do that, you know what happens. There's something in her that just wants to do what I told her not to do. It's like what you said. Our flesh just wants to be, you know, rebellious. It just wants to do these things that we're told not to do. And that's exactly what's happening. And God gave, God was so gracious enough to give this law to reveal the inability of man to be holy and perfect as God. So Paul tells us in Galatians 3, just a couple verses before what uh, Ricky, Ricky just read, Paul tells us that the law was given temporarily until the promised Messiah would come. And so the law was given and to do what it was intended to do, to reveal the holiness of God, to increase the sinfulness of men so that men would realize, I need a Savior. I need a Redeemer. I need a deliverer. So here you have this scribe who, sure, he doesn't see the bigger purpose of the law. He's trying to live his life by the law. But at least he gets the idea that this continual cycle can be stopped if they just loved God perfectly and loved others perfectly. If they love God from out of their hearts, their souls, their mind, their strength, if they love their neighbor perfectly as much as they love themselves, then there wouldn't be any sinning and there wouldn't need to be any burnt offerings and sacrifices. So the scribe gets it. It sounds so simple, right? Well, Jesus is actually impressed with the wisdom of this man, of this scribe. This is what Jesus answers to him in verse 34. Jesus says, And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he answers wisely, Jesus says to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. I think Jesus is ecstatic that he actually has run across somebody who's from this religious group that sees that if they were just perfect in their love towards God and towards others, that they would actually stop sinning. I think he's ecstatic to finally see somebody, find somebody that sees that the law, if you kept it perfectly, you would be okay. The scribe is saying that the fulfillment, the secret to fulfilling the 613 laws of Moses is just simply to perfectly love perfectly love God, perfectly love the neighbor. So the scribe, he kind of gets it in a certain sense. If they would just do that, then there'd be no sinning. There would be no reason for more sacrifices in this cycle of the sacrificial system would be brought to an end. So what's the big deal? What's the big problem? What are they waiting for? Well, hopefully you're seeing this. It's what? It's impossible. It is absolutely impossible 
to perfectly love God. If the secret to fulfilling the 613 commandments is to perfectly love God from out of our heart, our soul, our mind, our strength, love our neighbor as ourself, then we have no hope because it's impossible. The heart that you were born with and I was born with will not ever love God perfectly. The heart, the soul that we were born with will never love God perfectly. The mind that we were born with will never love God perfectly. The strength, you guessed it, it will never love God perfectly. And we will never, on our own, love our neighbors as much as we love ourselves. So this is why Jesus says, man, you're close. You're, You're starting to see something. You're starting to see that perfection, yes, is required. But you're not in. You're not in the kingdom yet. You're still missing something. And what was it that was missing? What was missing was the fact that he nor anyone could ever love God perfectly enough to fulfill the law of Moses. The scribe himself is caught in this trap of moralism. The scribe himself is caught in this trap of religion. He believes that if he just does something good enough, he'll be good enough to get in the kingdom of God. If anyone thought they were loving God and loving others perfectly, it was these, this group of scribes. They prided themselves. We'll see at the end of chapter, this chapter in two weeks. They, they pride themselves on how much they think that they are doing God a favor by how much they love God. But this scribe has bought hook, line, and sinker into the idea that he himself could be good enough based on the wickedness of others to make God happy with him. If he just behaves better than others, if he's just good enough, then he's at peace with God. And the shocker is that Jesus says that the result of this sort of thinking is exclusion from the kingdom of God, not inclusion into the kingdom of God. That ought to shock us this morning. So what, what is Jesus saying? He, he, he doesn't say, hey, great job, you get it, you're in. <laughs> no, he says, Well, at least you see that perfection is required, but you don't see that you'll never be able to do that on your own. Until you do, you're close. You're starting to get it, but you're not in the kingdom. Man, these are piercing words that Jesus has just told one of the most religious and devout individuals of the day. You are not a part of the kingdom of God. These are fighting words. These men have based everything that they are. They have committed their entire lives to to pouring their lives into a pious lifestyle, a devout lifestyle to this law. And Jesus, this carpenter from Galilee, is standing there saying, no, you're not in. You're not good enough. You are not in the kingdom that you think you're in. This is unbelievable. And put yourself in the shoes of these scribes. And so what happens? Our last sentence. And after that, no one dared ask him any more questions. Why is that? I wonder. Well, there might be two different reasons. I don't know which one it is. The first reason is maybe they just didn't want to keep getting handed to him by Jesus. Man, I've been there. You know, I've been there where I, I just I keep it's a losing battle. Every time I bring this up with, you know, with, you know whatever, I, I'm just not going to bring this up anymore. I, I'm just tired of getting it handed to me. So I'm just, I'm just not gonna bring it up anymore. Maybe that's what it was. Maybe though, their minds were set. They had heard enough. 
They had heard enough. They had heard all they wanted to hear, and they were ready to take the next step to formalize some charges against Jesus to arrest him and to kill him. And I think that's probably more what's happened. They, they don't want to hear anymore. They're done. They've heard enough. So as we wrap this thing up this morning, as we get ready to go home, we get in our cars, we go back to our busy lives, what can we glean out of this this morning? What kind of practical takeaways can we take from this interaction between Jesus and this self-righteous, uh, moralistic scribe? Well, our journey marker, and if you're new with us, our journey marker is just how do we try to summarize something to take with us that we can think on throughout the week. This, 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 this journey marker is this. We can never love God and others perfectly. But there's good news. He loves us perfectly. Let me tell you what I mean by that real quick. We, we must understand that the Mosaic law is a reflection of God's holy standard. We talked about that a couple seconds ago. If the law can be summed up by Jesus to love perfectly, it's because God loves perfectly. The whole point of the Christian life is not to work and work and work to love God perfectly and love others perfectly. You can't. It's impossible. The whole point of the Christian life, listen please, is to rest, to believe, to marinate, to walk, to dwell, to live, to breathe, to eat, to sleep in this unexplainable truth that God actually perfectly loves you with all His heart, with all His soul, with all His mind, with all His strength. And listen, He actually loves you as much as He loves His own Son. That is life-changing. For us to rest in that. His love is perfect. His love is unconditional. His love is unending. It's unchanging. It's unwarranted. If his love didn't smack our hearts in the heart, then we wouldn't even believe it. It's amazing, this love of God. In one of the most darkest moments of Israel's history, it was right before the Babylonians came to take Israel into bondage. This is in Jeremiah. We're going to read it on the screen. Jeremiah 32. As this has happened, one of the darkest days of Israel's history, a picture of how we are born into uh, uh, slavery, into sin. In the darkest moment, this is, what Jeremiah, this is what the Lord says, and Jeremiah writes it down. He says, I will bring them back. This is talking about future, talking about after the cross. He says, I will bring them. He's talking about his children, his people, you, if you believe. I will bring them back to this place this place of rest. I will make them dwell with me in safety. They shall be my people and I will be their God. I will give them one heart, one way, and they may, that they may fear me forever. That is, that they may perfectly actually obey me forever. And that's exactly what happens when God gives us the new heart, the new creation that's born from Him. I will make with them, uh, verse 40, an everlasting covenant that I will not turn away from doing good to them. And I will put the fear of me in their heart. Again, I will enable them to actually perfectly walk in obedience, which the new creation now does. 
that they will not turn from me. I will rejoice in doing them good. I will plant them in this land in faithfulness. Watch. With all my what? Heart. With all my soul. Guys, as tough as this might be, we have to believe that God loves you with all his heart, with all his soul, with all his mind, with all his strength. I've heard so many people tell me, well, I believe that God loves others, but I just can't believe that he loves me. I know me, Walt. I know what I've done. I can see him loving others, but I'm just not sure about him loving me. If this is you, before our band comes up to close us in a time of worship, can I just point out one more scripture? John 17, it's up on the screen as well. John 17, this is the night of Jesus' arrest. It's, it's probably just one night after his interaction with the scribe that we just read in Mark 12. And he's in the, gar- he's in the garden, he's praying for his disciples who are there with him. And he actually, starting in verse 20, starts praying for people in the future who would believe because of the disciples. Who is that? That's you. That's me. People who would believe. I ask not only for these, that is, not only for the disciples with me, but for those who would believe in me through their word. That's you. That's me. That's uh, those of us who believe in him today. Jesus starts praying for you, and he closes this prayer. Watch this. He closes this prayer by saying, I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be now, where? In them. And I in them. Jesus is saying that the very same love that he is loved with by the Father is now given to you who believe. It's amazing. God actually loves you as much as he loves his own son. This is, this is radical. So you will never, I will never love God perfectly. Never. But there's good news. He perfectly loves us. What happens when we start believing this? What happens when we stop living in this moralistic trap and start believing that God actually loves us with his everything? You might think I'm nuts, but but this is what actually happens. We actually start loving God and loving others in a way we never did before. It's it seems backwards, doesn't it? It seems like we ought to try and try and try our, hard, our hardest and our hardest to love God and to love others. Then he would love us and then they would love us. But that's not the way it works. You will fail daily. But the more you rest, the more you believe, the more you and I marinate, the more we walk, we live, we breathe, we eat, and we sleep in this unexplainable truth that God actually loves us with all his heart, with all his soul, with all his mind, with all his strength, and that he loves us as much as he loves his own son, radical things start happening. As our minds are renewed to this truth, radical things happen. The love of God now in us, because Christ is in us, actually starts flowing, leaking, manifesting through us to others. So husbands, dads, what do we need to do to love God in our kids and our wives better the first thing we got to do is we got to believe that god actually loves us with all his heart with all his mind all his soul all his strength we've got to actually believe that despite listen guys i know we'd struggle with this despite your performance 
man, I am so performance-driven. When I feel like I've done something well, I feel like people ought to like me and God ought to like me. When I fail at something, I'm like, man, why could you ever think about liking me? Despite our performance, guys, we've got to believe this. Moms, ladies, what do you need to do in order to love your husbands? Which I know for my wife that can be very hard at times, but to love your kids better? What do you, you need to soak in this unexplainable truth that God actually loves you. Listen, that he actually loves you despite how you feel about it. Because you might not feel loved at times. But we've got to get beyond the feelings. What did Boston say? It's more than a feeling. It's good. It's truth. We've got to realize that it's more than a feeling. This is truth that transcends. No matter who we are, we must rest in God's love towards us. So our band's going to come up and they're going to lead us in this final song. But until we get this, guys, and we, until we get this, we will find ourselves caught in this trap of moralism where we think we're good based on the badness of others. Listen, we can never perfectly love God and others. Let's get that in our heads. We can never. But it's okay. There's good news. God loves us perfectly. The more we believe this as a church, the more we see the whole point of the Mosaic Law is to not to give us a list of rules to live by, but to reveal the perfect character of God, to to reveal to us His love for us. The more we get this, the more we'll begin to actually love God and love others like we've never done before because it's actually Christ in us, loving through us. It's no longer our love trying to love, but it's actually Christ loving through us. Listen, there are plenty of churches who exist to put their believers back under the curse and the weight of the Mosaic law. As Ricky just said, that's nothing new. This happened in Galatia. But this letter that Paul scathingly wrote to them, it says, why are you so foolish to do that? You've been set free for freedom's sake. Unfortunately, many pastors, and I used to do it, so God began to open my eyes to this beauty of grace. We, we, we determine our church's commitment to God based on our efforts to love God and love others. Listen, we can't love out of ourselves God perfectly enough at all. We must rest in the truth that he loves us. We must believe that he loves us with everything. If someone were to ask me, Walt, What is your dream for Life Journey Church? What's your dream? Above our desires to plant more churches and and to see lives transformed and reaching nations, above that, the number one desire, the dream I have for Life Journey Church is that we would be a church that actually believes the good news that God actually loves us. Because as we believe that, as we rest in that, soak in it, man, something amazing happens. God himself starts loving people through us. Perhaps you're here this morning, you're trapped in this trap of moralism. We're going to have a time of prayer here where I'm going to ask you to just pray, to ask God, say, God, I don't know. I thought the whole point of this Christian life was just to do my best to love you more and more and more and more. And and, and when I didn't do it, to ask for forgiveness because I've messed up. And and here this guy is saying that Jesus is saying that I can't do that. God, give me wisdom. Give me knowledge. The Spirit of God, His role is to lead you, to guide you in truth. I'll be standing over here. Come and talk if you'd like.
or afterwards during the week if you'd like. But maybe this morning you've never placed your trust in Jesus. You don't believe that Jesus is the Son of God. You don't believe that He's actually come to take away your sin. And can, I, can I just beg you this morning to change your mind? Could you please change your mind and believe that Jesus actually came as God in the flesh to pay for your sin, to redeem you from this wickedness that we walk in every day? I'll be standing up here but I don't want us to just run into music. I want us to just, to just pray, to just ask God. As hard as it may be, ask him to really reveal to you how much he loves you. How much he loves you with all his heart, with all his soul, with all his mind, with all his strength. Father, as we close out this morning, God, I thank you for your spirit being here. God, I thank you for even this man trapped in this moralistic ideology. God, I just pray for your people this morning. The Father, that we would actually walk in the freedom that you set us free. The payment has been paid. The price is it's done. It's covered. God, help us to believe that you actually love us. This is hard for us at times. But as we believe this, God, I'm confident that from the inside out, Christ himself, the spirit of you in us, will actually love you and love others in a way that we could never do on our own. So God, we thank you. In Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to this message from Life Journey Church. Feel free to distribute this podcast, but please do not charge for it or alter it in any way. For more information about Life Journey Church, visit us at www.lifejourneyva.com.